Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest in York City, New Jersey, Philly edition. We're going to be talking about some interesting things today. We've got a couple of questions we want to throw out to those of you who are in the audience, and uh, we'll be getting to those in just a few minutes. But first of all, let me introduce everybody today. Chase Byers uh, is with us from Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. Starts at Harrisburg, New Jersey. Uh, good afternoon, Chase. Good afternoon, guys. It's good to see you. And Chase is a new regular. Uh, he's going to be with us from week to week, and I'm glad for that. And then Joe works in Fairlawn, New Jersey, as always. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Chase. Good to be with you all again this afternoon. So we're going to be talking about Calvinism today. We talked a little bit about once saved, always saved last week. And, of course, that's one of the uh, tenets of Calvinism. And we're going to talk about some of the other points of Calvinism a little bit today. Maybe try to make it a little bit practical, help people to understand the practical implications and what denominations teach various parts of Calvinism, what denominations teach all the parts of Calvinism. Maybe we'll touch a little bit on all of that. have a couple of other things that we want to throw out, and uh, there are a couple of questions for you. One is uh, Mary's perpetual virginity. There was a uh, news article this past week online. Somebody. Uh, was saying they had new evidence. In fact, I think Google News may have promoted it this way. New evidence for the perpetual virginity of Mary, the idea that Mary was always a virgin, that Joseph and Mary never had relations. And um, so we'll talk a little bit about that toward the end of the webcast today. But the question I want to throw out to our viewers, and when we get to it, maybe you'll have some comments to share with us. Why is this such a big deal for Roman Catholics? Why is it such a big deal for the Catholic Church that Mary be a perpetual virgin? The other thing I want to throw out to our viewers and get your response, and I don't know the answer to this question, but Joe uh, knows something about somebody named Debony Groves, and he says if you have heard him talk about this or write about Debony Groves, then hold your peace, But if and don't Google it, don't Google it, don't go Googling Debony Groves, but if you know who Debony Groves is and why we're going to be talking about her, you know something I don't know, and maybe you can join us and share that information with us. And then uh, we'll spend some time talking about Calvinism. The first thing I think let's do is let's try to find out about Debony Groves. Right, Chase? You think that'd be a good thing to start out with? Yeah, let's hear about it, Joe. All right, so Joe, tell us about Debony Groves. But let me before. Jeff, before I tell you about it, I just, I just want to enjoy this moment. I actually know something that you don't. I want to soak this in. I, I want the audience to consider this. And it, it's just a, it's a time of pleasure for me. Let, let me have my, my 15 seconds of fame here. Well, I hope it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Debony Groves. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yes. Let's see if anybody in our audience has uh, has uh, an idea as to who Debony Groves is. Let me check here real quickly. Uh, Noah hasn't posted anything from the Facebook page, so let me remind our audience, if you are watching by Facebook, you can just make comments there in the Facebook page, and Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, will get your comments and questions to us. Right now, if you know anything about Debony Groves, you can chime in, and if you're watching by the Zoom app, you can use the Q&A icon to do that. But inasmuch as nobody has come forward to tell us anything about Debony Groves, Joe, tell me about Debony Groves. Okay. Um, Well, it is a tragedy, but it is also a beautiful story 
I think, for us to make some good applications, practical, personal applications. At least that's what I'm doing with her story. Um, last week, Devony Groves was sitting in a Waffle House in Antioch, Tennessee, along with uh, some other people there that she knew when uh, a madman entered into the restaurant, having shot two people and killed them outside of the Waffle House, then entered in and uh, shot two other people, one of them being Debony. Um, Probably people heard about that incident and all that took place afterward. Um, There was a man who uh, took the gun away from the, the, the killer and the killer fled and so forth. He's gotten a good amount of attention, and I'm thankful. Uh, he certainly is a hero in that in that instant. But Devony Groves uh, was one of the two that died inside the Waffle House. And at her funeral last week, the CEO of Waffle House spoke at her funeral. And one of the things that he revealed, I, I think several people already knew this before that, but he talked about the fact that Inside the Waffle House, right before she was shot, and maybe even after, I'm not exactly sure. I've tried to read the details on it. That part maybe doesn't matter. But the last thing that is recorded of her saying was, Jesus loves me, this I know. Oh, wow. She, was, she and her friend were singing that song in the Waffle House when she was shot. Now, just, just think about, you know, what's the last thing that's going to be on your lips when you die? Yeah. No, you know, we may die in our sleep. We, you know, it may have been something we've said, you know, uh, six hours earlier. But boy, um, to think about, you know, the last thing that, that she was talking about was how much the Lord loves her. Wow. And, and, and I, and I started, I, I did, I did not, I was not aware of who Debney Groves was. And I started out kind of amused that we were talking about somebody and I had no clue what we we're going to be talking about. Sure. But, um, well, and, and, and obviously if you don't know that name and didn't know anything about her, she could have been anybody doing anything. Um, so, uh, last, uh, Sunday morning, this, this last Sunday, uh, I had that in my sermon to, to talk about and uh, hadn't said anything to anybody about it. Assumed that most people didn't know the story. It's not greatly publicized. But if you would Google Debony, D-E-B-O-N-Y, Groves, Jesus Loves Me, you'll see plenty of articles then from the Tennessean and other uh, sites. Uh, How old was Debony? um, She'd be early 20s. She was like two weeks away from getting her bachelor's degree. Um, in social work or something like that, just a, a giving person, unselfish person, it seems like in many, many ways. Um, and so, uh, as I was getting ready, to, you know, we were beginning services and, uh, the gentleman that was leading worship songs for us here at Fairlawn Sunday morning, he didn't know what I was going to talk about. The first song that he chose was Jesus Loves Me. That's what we began the worship service singing about. I couldn't sing it. Um, I, I had to just put my head down and, and try not to bawl. But, uh, but that each one of us, each one of us would live our lives in the love of God in Jesus Christ so that 
is, is we see our life passing before us as we come to that moment when we realize we're going to die, that we could have that confidence to say, Jesus loves me, this I know. Right, yeah. And, and, and as well, <laughs> because we, most of us will not know before we die, you know, may that be the kind of thoughts are, that are always on our minds and right. on our lips. Uh, may we, we think on these things, as Paul talks about in Philippians 4, um, what, what, a, what a marvelous testimony to uh, the, the faith that she had. I'm not a judge of, of her salvation or anything else, but what a great lesson it's been for me to think about this last several days. Mm. Mm. I had seen news reports of a shooting at a Waffle House, but I had not, I had not read any of them, was not aware of the details. Um, and, um, so I guess this is what I had been seeing references to. Right. Yeah. That is truly just a a really powerful, um, story. It reminds me of Colossians three, two, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and the person who has Jesus on the forefront of their mind at all times, that's going to be on the tip of their tongue at all times. And it's no surprise for someone like that. That, that well, bringing in the final moments. Now, now thinking about that, though, we said we're also going to be talking about Calvinism today. There's a passage in John 15, thinking about being in Jesus' love, and then thinking about Calvinism. In John 15 and verse uh, 9 is where I'm going to start reading. Uh, Jesus said, even as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, here's a thought as we connect to this idea with Calvinism. Calvinism teaches that God has chosen certain ones who are going to be saved, and, and uh, there's nothing that they can do to avoid being saved. And everybody else is going to be condemned, and there's nothing they can do to avoid being condemned. Because according to the Calvinist, it's just all the sovereign will of God, and he's decided it, and that's the way it is. Uh, So there's no way that I can either choose to be in Christ's love, or if I were in Christ's love, that I could choose to be out of Christ's love. And yet Jesus said, abide in my love. He said, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Um, and, and then in verse 9, abide you in my love as, as a command, as, as an instruction, as if I have a choice. So I would say this, uh, contrary to Calvinism, uh, we do have a choice, and, and you have a choice. Uh, if, you, if you want to be able to sing with confidence, um, uh, when I can't quote the line. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus does love us. God loves all of us. But to, are we abiding in his love? That's a choice we have to make. So let's talk about the tenets of Calvinism, and we'll come to the, um, the idea of Mary's virginity in a few moments toward the end of the webcast. But uh, talking about Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism, what are they? Well, first you have uh, T in the word tulip, which means total depravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
essentially means, you know, there's really nothing that we can do about our sin. Uh, we're just born horrible people and we can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so if we're born, and by the way, this is not what John Calvin himself said in organizing his theology, but this is the way his followers, Calvinists, organized his theology. And they, and so it, this little acronym, TULIP, the word TULIP, each letter representing one of the five points of this theology, or soteriology, uh, if, if man is totally depraved, then if God gives man a choice, a totally depraved man is going to reject it. He's going to reject any, any offering of salvation or any offering of any, any request to be good. And so it's necessary that the election unto salvation be unconditional, and that gets us the you in TULIP. So we've got the first two points, the idea that man is totally depraved, he's born that way, inheriting that nature from Adam. Then secondly, the you is, the you in TULIP is, God's election, God's choosing to save man is unconditional. Otherwise, man would reject it. So what's the next point? So instead, while it is unconditional, it is limited. Uh, limited atonement, it's only for those to whom God chooses to extend that. Sure, and that's necessary for the Calvinists to believe that because they agree that not everybody's going to be saved, but if salvation, if, if God's grace is unconditionally offered to everybody, if Jesus died for everybody and there's no conditions that are going to make any distinction between some who are saved and some who are lost, there's no conditions we have to meet, then the only way anybody's going to be lost is if Jesus didn't die for everybody. It was a limited atonement. And so there you get the L, T-U-L. Of course, the next letter is I. So where does that go? That puts us with irresistible grace for the elect. Okay. So the idea here is God does want his people to be good, but they're totally depraved. So God has to do a work, an irresistible work, because being totally depraved, if he just said, hey, listen, you all, I've saved you. So how about please being good? they would reject that. So he has to have an irresistible operation of the Holy Spirit that, that changes these people contrary to their own will, in spite of their own will, and they can't resist that. Uh, so irresistible grace is the I in TULIP. So we have T-U-L-I, and that brings us to P. Perseverance of the saints. And obviously, if... God's saving of people is unconditional. He just picks out certain people, says Christ died for them. There's nothing they have to do. And he's going to give them an irresistible work of the Holy Spirit such that they can't reject it. They can't decline it. There's nothing they can do to be lost. It wasn't their choice to be saved. There's nothing they can do to be lost. So once you're saved, once you're one of the chosen, you're always going to be saved. You cannot fall away. So that's T-U-L-I-P. Those are the points of Calvinism. We talked about the last one last week, right? Yeah. And so, and so does it seem to you that as you look at those five tenets or points, um, that if any one of them isn't true, they are, they are so tied together, yeah. that one of them isn't true, then all of them fall? Yeah. yeah, domino effect. Exactly. Let, let's do this real quickly before we kind of take a look at each of these individually. Does anybody believe this today? I run into people every now and then who say, well, nobody really believes that. Um, 
I, I found uh, it's pretty typical to run into someone who would claim to be a Calvinist, but it's also typical for them to say, I'm either all in or there's certain aspects of it I agree with. Which, back to Joe's point, isn't logical. Uh, so first of all, there are people who hold all five points. The Reformed churches, if you see a church building with a sign out front that says Reformed such and such, chances are they're going to hold all five points. Some of the Presbyterian churches are going to hold all five. Historically, the Presbyterian churches are going to hold all five points of Calvinism. Uh, but there are a lot of denominations that have been influenced by Calvinism, and there are certain ones of these five points they really like, but they reject others. Which are the popular points in Protestant? <laughs> Once saved, always saved certainly is uh, appealing. Uh, yeah, but but you don't get there unless you accept the previous four points, which which a lot of people who believe once saved, always saved, don't believe that God has just arbitrarily chosen which people are going to be saved and which people are going to be lost. They believe we have a choice, but then they end up with the conclusion, but the conclusion arises out of the doctrine that says you don't have a choice. Irresistible grace would be the other one they really like. Irresistible grace. There are people who like that idea. And you hear that a lot in this idea. I got saved such and such a date when I had this experience and the Holy Spirit just came over me. And in that instant, my life changed. I didn't choose to change. It was just this experience that happened to me. Um, and it, But again, that's that doctrine is an upshot of this idea that you're born totally depraved and your salvation is unconditional and you don't have any choice in it. But a lot of people reject the premise. So I don't know what it is about the, the consonants versus the vowels here, but uh, it seems like even the, the total depravity is something that is pretty universally, or, or, or not universally, but, but largely accepted uh, original sin for a lot of people that I've talked with, they've just assumed that that is true, not necessarily that they're wanting it to be true. They just start with that basis, I think, from you know prior teachings, whatever they've been indoctrinated with. Yeah, so there are people who accept the conclusion, but not the premise of total depravity, and then there are people who accept the premise of total depravity, and they don't accept the conclusion that I have no choice in the matter. Right. Uh, but it is a system that all hangs together. Um, so really what we need to do, instead of trying to figure out uh, how much of this system I can hold on to, what do we need to do? We just need to start with the Bible and say, does the Bible teach this stuff? And so maybe let's walk through what the Bible says about these things. Well, if I could uh, maybe, I don't know if, if there's a reverse segue or not, uh, <laughs> but uh, if I can uh, invoke that. Loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so, which is what you just now said. Let's see what the Bible says. The next part of that song is little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting to think about singing that song. You know, that is also something that is pretty uh, popular and, and people want to to hold on to that, that little ones are, are in God's care if they die or, uh, you know, in whatever situation. Um, and, and so, if we have total depravity, uh, if we are born in sin, then little ones to him do not belong. Yeah, um, this idea of little ones to such belongs the kingdom of God. Somebody was talking, Chase, was it you? Somebody was talking recently about just all that's involved in this idea of being childlike. Oh, it was somebody at the Exton Two Day study, wasn't it? No? Where did I hear somebody talking about that recently? 
I believe it was Dan Bunting, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was Dan Bunting. Oh, it was Dan Bunting. He spoke for us uh, Sunday night at Exton uh, a week and a half ago. And he was just talking about this whole section in, uh, in um, I don't remember if he was here in the context in the account in Mark chapter 10, or if he were over, was over in Matthew 19. But going through and looking at the, um, the childlike response to God's word, and uh, all, all the, the aspects of that. And I guess the, the point that I would make here is the Bible really calls upon us to have a response to God as a child putting his trust in a father. And, and that's a choice that we make. In fact, if you look at the Bible, just all of the epistles and the teaching of Jesus, it's just, it's abundantly clear it's a choice. There is an appeal to us. Let's, let's start with whether or not we believe in Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 10. What I want to emphasize here is the idea that we have a choice. This is not God picking out somebody and saying, okay, I'm going to save you unconditionally, and I'm going to irresistibly cause a supernatural work in your heart that's going to make you be good. Listen to what Jesus says to some skeptical uh, Jews. In John chapter 10, in verse 37, Jesus says, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do them, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The first thing I want you to notice is he's talking to people who are skeptical. He says, though you believe me not, so he's got an audience here that doesn't believe in him. Does that sound like somebody who's, had a, who's already had an irresistible work of the Holy Spirit work on them and changed them into faithful people? No. Well, how is he going to, does he want these people to be changed into faithful people? Yes, he does. He says, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. How is he going to get them there? He says, look at the works that I do. Look at the miracles. Draw the conclusion. This is a mental, intellectual process. By intellectual, I don't mean a cold analysis of the facts without putting your heart in it. But what I mean is he makes an appeal to the mind of man. Look at the evidence, draw a conclusion, and let that conclusion lead you to salvation. That's, that's a different idea than the, than the Calvinistic idea of salvation. It certainly is. And John, I mean, the point is made over and over in chapter 14, even do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then down in verse six, Jesus said to him, uh, to Thomas, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me, that is Jesus. Uh, it starts with the belief. And again, I would add to that. And, and it just, it, it becomes, at least to me, on practically every page of the gospel accounts, especially uh, this calling of our Lord to to his listeners uh, to respond, to do something, uh, not that it's thrust upon them. In John 5, uh, as Jesus is talking about the witnesses that he has, after listing several of them, John, the miracles, the Father, the scriptures, he then says to, to these uh, Jews, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's their will. It's not Jesus's will that's uh, preventing or forcing. He says, you are not willing to come to me. 
Well, these ideas point to the, the idea that salvation is conditional, that we have a choice. Help, help us out here with just some very specific statements that would indicate that salvation is conditional. Does the Bible teach that? Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who disbelieves shall be condemned. Hebrews 12, 14 is a passage that, that I, I comes to my mind because Hebrews is one of those letters. The whole letter is, is unnecessary if, if Calvinism is true. The whole letter is a warning to God's people, in this case Jews who are believers, uh, not to make the mistake the Israelites made, which prevented them from entering into their rest, their promised land. And the warning to these believers, to these Christians is, don't make the same mistake that you fail to enter into your rest, your promised land, so to speak. Why would you write that to people who cannot possibly be saved? I think we talked about that last week. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says to these people, follow after peace with all men and the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, that sounds like salvation is conditional. If you want to see the Lord, uh, you're going to have to follow after peace and sanctification. There's another passage where Jesus talks about seeing the Lord and entering the kingdom of God. John 3. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 5. This sounds like, this sounds pretty conditional to me. John chapter 3 and verse 5. Uh, Jesus answers to Nicodemus. He's already said you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? Go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, except one be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Except you're born of the water and spirit. Boy, that sounds like a condition, doesn't it? Right. Very much so. Uh, also, and, and this is on the few occasions I've had to talk to somebody who really believed these things and, and held on to them as you know, matters of, of their faith. Uh, I've always been perplexed by hearing them try to explain the word repent. You know, yes. John came teaching, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, uh, Matthew 3, 2. Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew four seventeen. He sent out the 70 in Mark 6. He told them to teach repentance. Acts 2, 38, Peter's sermon, repent and be baptized. Acts 19, repent and do works fitting of repentance. Acts 10, uh, 7, 30, 31, I guess it is. Um, uh, you know, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Uh, repentance is such a solid part of the New Testament preaching. But it's not just something that, he, that they're saying, God is going to make you repent. It's something that he's telling the people that they need to do. You know, you know, you mentioned Acts 2.38. So Acts chapter 2 is this occasion when thousands and thousands of Jews have come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And Peter stands up and preaches to them and convinces them that the one they crucified seven weeks earlier was their Messiah. Jesus is both Lord and Christ, this, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they cry out when they become aware they have crucified the Messiah their people had been waiting for for generations. They cry out, what shall we do? And, and you know, if Calvinism were true, it seems Peter should have responded, well, folks, there's really nothing you can do. Uh, the sovereign God has already decided which ones of you are going to be saved and which ones aren't. And the fact is, not all of you are, uh, just some of you. And, and really, you have no choice in whether you're in this group that's going to be saved or not. 
God's already decided that. And for those of you who he's decided to save, there's nothing you can do about it to be lost. And for those of you who are not going to be saved, there's nothing you can do about it to be saved. So don't worry about it. Just go your merry way. Uh, that's about all there is to it. That's not what Peter said. Right. So if we were to play devil's advocate, what would a Calvinist say in, in back to you, Jeff, into that kind of argument? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have somebody who's a Calvinist send us that answer. Or second best, if somebody has gotten an answer to that question from a Calvinist, I'd love to have somebody send us that. There was one instance I, I had someone, uh, I wouldn't say that they were a five-point Calvinist down the line, but they I pressed the issue. Mm-hmm. And the common answer, and we even talked about last week, would be, well, they were never saved in the first place. They, uh-huh. they never really came to the Lord in the first place. Yeah, uh, but that's the closest I've heard. Uh, to so, so we talked about, and and of course that doesn't help us with Acts two thirty eight. Why Peter said right. what he said, but we, I think we talked about that last week. Where we did didn't we look at did we look at Second Peter chapter two and Hebrews chapter ten last week? Where you clearly have people who have been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, and and now they're lost. Or in the case of Second uh, Peter chapter uh, two, where uh, they had escaped the defilements of sin, and now they're in a worse state than they were to begin with. Well, in the, in, in the beginning, they were lost. So now they're worse than that. They're obviously lost. So, yeah, Joe. So here's what they would say. Uh, I know that because I have some of their writings. Okay, here we go. So if sal- and so I'm quoting here. Make sure that our listeners understand this is not my teaching. If salvation cannot be lost, and why do so many of the promise passages have conditions attached to them? And here is his answer. Conditions such as faith, love, and doing the will of God do not imply that salvation is dependent on our performance, but to distinguish those who are saved from those who are lost. Our good works, by his power, give evidence of the life of God in us, and this becomes our testimony before a watching world. And then he quotes 1 John 2, 5, by this, we know that we are in him. And so when God, when Jesus commands or Peter commands uh, repentance, those that do repent, that's showing those that God wants to be saved. Those that don't repent, that's showing those that God didn't want to be saved, that God decided who was that they were going to be lost. Of course, the odd thing, even in the reading this, when he says, our good works by his power give evidence of the life of God in us, and this becomes our testimony for a watching world. Why do we need a testimony? What, what's, what's the point of all yeah, of that? Yeah. All of this has already been predetermined. Or in, in Acts chapter 2, again, to go to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. So then what your Calvinist friend would say is when he said, repent and be baptized, he was not saying you need to do this so that you can have forgiveness of sins, even though that's what he said. He was saying do this as a testimony to others that you are one of the saved. So then one of those who's not one of the saved walks up and says, okay, I repent and I'm ready to be baptized. And Peter says to him, oh no, sorry, you're not one of the chosen. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, of course the Calvinists would say that he would never have walked up because God would not have touched his heart. Oh, I see. So, uh, all right, let's take Hebrews chapter 12 where he says, follow after peace and sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. The Calvinists would say, 
what that passage is saying is those who have been chosen are going to follow after peace and sanctification, and the ones who don't follow after peace and sanctification are the ones who have not been chosen. But the problem is the whole letter to the Hebrews is an admonition. Be sure you don't make the mistake the Israelites made because they did not enter into the to their rest. And so let me read it. Hebrews chapter four, verse one, after talking about the Israelites, he says, let us there, let us fear therefore, lest haply a promise being left of entering into his rest. There's a promise for us. Any one of you should seem to have come short of it, just like the Israelites did. So I don't know. Calvinists would say, well, it just seems like you'll come short of it, but you won't really. Yeah, and, and, and that's the problem, and, and I certainly don't want to argue their point very far. Um, I don't think I'm persuasive, and certainly their argument is not persuasive. Uh, but to me, it just seems as if God is kind of mocking people, giving them these conditions, offering their salvation if they meet them, but then God not letting them meet them. Yeah. And again, we used the First Timothy 2.5 uh, last week that God desires all men to be saved. Mm-hmm. You have you you sort of have a, a schizophrenic God that wants everybody to be saved but isn't going to offer salvation. Let's uh, we, we may have hit Hebrews two nine since we're in Hebrews last week. Uh, Jesus tasted of death for all men. Did we talk about irresistible grace last week at all? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Is it is it possible to resist the Holy Spirit? We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think it's Ephesians 4, it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63 as well. Okay. And then, and then there is uh, this passage in Acts chapter 7, and this is in verse 51. And it says, uh, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. Yeah, yeah, certainly it is possible to resist. And again, the Hebrew writer, it's almost as if for this whole series, we could just read the book of Hebrews. Um, uh, And I think maybe we even talked about this last week. Um, But Hebrews 10, uh, 29, how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified by the common thing. And I, they were sanctified, and now they are a warning for them to, to not count that as a common thing. Holly Green, who's watching, sends us this comment. What about the verse that says, God wishes all to be saved and none to perish? That's going to be Second Peter chapter 3 and what, verse 9? Yeah. Uh, uh, Second oh, uh, Peter 3, 9. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So what, what have you heard a Calvinist say about that? Or do you have that there handy, Joe? Or Chase? Yeah, it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But but what do the Calvinists say about that when the, their doctrine says that God has just chosen, these people are going to be lost, and these people are going to be saved, and there's not going to be any change to that? I guess they would have their hands tied and have to say only the elect are the ones that God is being patient for. All the elect. Of course, it doesn't say that, but okay. Yeah, I mean, that's generally, I don't see anything in, in what I've, uh, what I have from them that deals with that passage, but generally that's what they do is they will say, well, that passage is only talking to 
this group. Mm-hmm. That passage is only talking to those who seem like they're saved, but they're not really saved. That passage is only talking to those who are saved, but don't seem like they're saved, um, uh, and, and so forth. At that point, are we making ourselves out to be a judge? <laughs> sure, certainly. We're making ourselves out to be rather arbitrary exegetes of the Word of God. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about something that is taught by another religious group, and this would be the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, I want to bring Drew DeGrotto on. He's with us on Tuesdays, of course. And uh, Drew, good afternoon. How are you today? Oh, doing great, Jeff. Good to see you on Wednesday. Boy, your, your broadcast studio looks the same today as it does on a Tuesday show. Well, well <laughs> actually, mine does too, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, so here, here's a question for you, Joe. Uh, I mean, Joe, Drew. Um, the, the, there was an article that I think Google, my Google News feed um, highlighted this article this past week. New evidence for the perpetual virginity of, of Jesus. I mean, I'm sorry, the perpetual virginity of Mary. The Catholic Church, of course, teaches not only was Mary a virgin when Jesus was born, she was a perpetual virgin, and of course they still pray to her as a virgin now in heaven. The question, the Bible doesn't tell us that she was a perpetual virgin, and the the gist of the article that was linked by Google News was that somebody was making the case, well, when it says he had brothers, brothers can mean cousins, and so those would not have necessarily been Mary's children. Well, Joe Works is going to talk to us in just a moment about the context of that passage. But why is it such a big deal, Drew? Why was it, when you were, you were raised a Catholic, why is it such a big deal to the Catholic Church that Mary be a perpetual virgin? The Bible never says that. No, in fact, I didn't know the Bible never said that when I was younger. Well, why was it such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal today to the Catholic Church that Mary has to be a perpetual virgin, 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 a perpetual virgin? There's two answers, in my opinion, two answers to that. One, the first answer is when I was on that uh, belief, or or I believe that doctrine, Mary was uh, the mother of God. And that's important from a Catholic point of view. Because you see, as a Catholic, I was praying to her. And I don't recall ever anyone telling me that I needed to pray to Jesus. But I, but I do recall I always had to pray to Mary. And, well, how can you pray to another human being? Well, she's the mother of God. She's the queen. In fact, the terms that I recall was the queen of heaven. Queen of heaven, which ironically, the only place that phrase is used is in Jeremiah with reference to a pagan deity. But nonetheless... To press the issue a little bit, let's suppose, okay, somebody's going to think, and the the Bible doesn't teach we should pray to Mary, far from it, but if somebody thinks they should pray to Mary, and if somebody thinks that they should refer to her as the mother of God, why is it such a big deal that she be a perpetual virgin? I don't know if it's such a that they're promoting it as that this is a big deal, except that it was a big deal. The why, <laughs> the why doesn't make sense, but don't forget it. I think it started after leaving the Catholic faith, I started doing research on it, and I don't think it really started hitting hard until around the fourth century. I could be wrong. There was some little talk about it second and third, but it started getting harder in the fourth. And once you start down this road and you have 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people by now, millions and millions of people, you can't get away from it. So it's important to hold on to that dogma. Huh. So, so why? Well, I mean, I had, a, I, had, I had statues in my room that had Mary as, as the queen of heaven, as the mother of God, more important than Jesus. I, I, I had to hold on to that. And it was important as a Catholic. Today, I mean, you got, you're selling rosary beads like crazy, and she's the one you're praying to that. So I, 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 it's a combination of things, and I don't want to, to make it sound so commercial, but they can't give up something that they have started so many years ago. Jump in here, Joe. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've read, and, and ever so briefly on it, is the connection with uh, her virginity being a sign of purity, deity as the mother of God, um, being revered and exalted to that position, if she had engaged in that carnal activity, not sinful, but in sexual relationships with Joseph, um, then that makes her lesser, not bad, but, but lesser. And one of the writings talks about it's not a matter of good and bad, but of better and good. Um, so the idea is that her sacrifice to become a perpetual virgin is more symbolic and representative and modelistic, is that a word, uh, for the church. Add something to that, Joe, because, you know, the church, the Catholic Church did teach, and I remember teaching that marriage and the relationship of marriage, sexual relationship, is a good thing. So they were never putting it down. But they added to the fact that, well, if she didn't, and, and, and I was taught, uh, from my understanding, if I recall it, she gave, she volunteered to be a virgin. Right. And that she, she couldn't do everything that she really wanted to do for God and, and still have a regular life. So yeah. that was the main thing. Chase is yeah. trying to get in here. Yeah, so what Joe said is it is in the Baltimore Catechism. It's in, it's in the book. Um, and I actually asked why that was in there, the idea of the priesthood and the nuns and the sisters that have lived a celibate life. Why are they described as being better than the rest of the members? And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, and maybe you guys can help me spot the exact verse. Verse 1, it's good that a man not touch a woman, but because of fornications, let each one have his verse right there. Uh, no, it's it's somewhere in the middle because it does use the phrasing good and better. Right. Yeah. Uh, th th if she marries, it, it is good, but I prefer that she not marry, that it's better. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, it's in the, the 25 through, uh, through 40. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's, let's first of all establish some context here. In the beginning, when God created man, male and female created he them, before there was any sin, before there was any taint in the world, it says this, verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and, they shall, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that idea of becoming one flesh clearly includes the sexual union. Paul makes that clear in his use of that phrase in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. And so here you have sexual union being a part of the ideal state of man in the Garden of Eden before there was any sin, any sin. And then in Hebrews chapter tw uh, 13, of course, and verse, um, verse 4, let marriage be had in honor among all. Let the bed be undefiled. 
fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The marriage bed is undefiled. Now we have this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that talks about a good and a better and so on. And yet in the context, why is Paul saying it might be better to be unmarried? What's he talking about there? Is he saying because sexual union is somehow less holy? What's he saying there? Yeah, the, the verse is verse 38, and it's going to depend on your translations how that reads. Uh, but the context is because of this present distress that is going on um, uh, and uh, that there's going to be more difficulties uh, and troubles uh, in the flesh during this present distress that he describes uh, earlier in the section, verse 26. Mm-hmm. Good, good. And as he develops that thought, he talks about how when you are married, you have divided responsibilities. You, you're, you have a responsibility to serve the Lord, but you also have to be concerned for the well-being of your spouse. So he says in verse 32, I would have you be free from cares. He that's unmarried is careful for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He that is married is careful for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't be caring for your wife. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, he uses the picture of a husband nourishing and caring for his wife as an analogy to Christ nurturing and caring for the church. So that's a good thing. But in a situation where there is distress, whether it be persecution or whatever, uh, when you have responsibility for somebody else and not only for yourself, it can, it can be challenging. It's not about being less holy or more holy. So, but, but I think what we're, what we're saying here is this, this doctrine of perpetual virginity, it doesn't arise out of the Bible saying Mary was a perpetual virgin. It arises out of a notion in the history of the Catholic Church evolution where there is this idea that sexual union is somehow less than ideal. Yep, that's exactly right. I agree with what you, what you said. All right, well, guys, we're out of time. I really should have left a little bit more time for us to talk about that at the end of the webcast here today, uh, but we're going to have to go. We'll have to leave it at that. We will see you all next week. Thank you, Noah, for your work as our webcast engineer. Very good. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys.